Hello, this is Melissa, and it's Real History. Today is Thursday, August 17, 2023, and I am joined today by Brandon Turpeville. Very excited to have him be able to take some time to talk to me. Hi, Brandon. Hey, Melissa. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing well also. Uh, I appreciate you having me on on uh, on the program, and and it's an honor to to be on Cutting Through the Matrix. I've been listening to Alan's work for years, so it's it really is an honor to just be able to come on to this site and 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 talk. Oh, great! Yeah, so well, I know you and Alan talked a few times, and he really appreciated your work. I want to mention that right now, Brandon has his own website which I will put up and he also writes a lot for activist post so here's just a little bio that he has on his website that I'll share with you it said that Brandon Turbeville is a writer out of Florence South Carolina he is the author of seven books and I think you've got another one that we'll talk about but what's listed here is the road to Damascus the Anglo-American assault on Syria Codex Elementarius, The End of Health Freedom, Seven Real Conspiracies, Five Cents Solutions, The Difference It Makes, 36 Reasons Hillary Clinton Should Never Be President, and Dispatches from a Dissident, Volume 1 and 2. He is a staff writer for Activist Post and has published over 1,500 articles dealing with a wide variety of subjects including health, economics, war, government corruption, and civil liberties. He's been a guest on numerous alternative media broadcasts as well as mainstream outlets. Turbeville is also an occasional contributor to other media outlets such as Natural Blaze, the Anti-Media and Progressive Gazette, Era of Wisdom, and Off-Rail Alliance. And then I will post some contact information, and that will tell you where you can purchase Brandon's books, and it gives you his Twitter handle and other links that you might find useful. Now, what I'm not seeing, earlier when I was looking around, I found a book of poetry that you had published and I loved the name and then I can't I don't have the page up and now I can't recall the name the title uh, Dance Amputee I think is probably yes, what you're referring yes, that's it <laughs> that's very dark yeah it's 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 um, it's definitely not light reading if, if you're into poetry you know it's not going to probably brighten your day very much but it's <laughs> Uh, I think the genre is considered war poetry, but uh, it's a little bit—it's about a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. And then you—you you told me that you have just completed another book. Is that right? Yeah, I've, I've actually got um, in the bio. I didn't mention the book that I think is probably the the best one that I've done on the Syrian issue, which is called "Resisting the Empire: um, uh, The Plan to Destroy Syria and How the Future of the World Depends on the Outcome." That's that's one that kind of goes from uh, the beginning of the Syrian crisis up to probably the Trump administration, I would say, till, up till about 2016. And then the books that I've just been working on and releasing, uh, the first volume's already out. It's called The War Continues, The Syrian Crisis, uh, 2016 to 2022. Volume one's already been released, and volume two is coming out 
and early September. So this is pretty much the Syrian crisis from 2016, the beginning of the Trump administration, to the present. And that's what both of those volumes are dealing with. Uh, the first Syrian book that you mentioned, The Road to Damascus, mainly was explaining the fact that the so-called opposition in Syria were actually Western-backed terrorists, and it was explaining how that was done, who they were, and that sort of thing. And then again, resisting the empire kind of tells the entire story, and the new books are from 2016 to the present. I've also got a couple more coming out in the future that one deals with specifically the White Helmets and the, the another that deals with color revolutions. Very small book, but just explains some brief history and explanation of what color revolutions are and how they work, how they worked in the past. Okay, this uh, when I was looking at your website and just looking at some of the links that you had on the site, I recalled that you had done some work with Vanessa Bealey. Is is that correct, that you've worked with her on maybe an article or two, or were you in Syria at the same time that she was? I'm yeah, we've, we've, we've talked. I know her. I know her work. Um, uh, we met in Syria because we were both there at the same time. We haven't collaborated on any articles or anything. Um, you know, that maybe in the future. But, uh, yeah, that's about the extent of it. And I've, I've quoted her at length. You know, if, if anybody's interested, then, you know, just look at my work and you'll see a, a lot of, of quotes from Vanessa. She's done great work there. Okay, that might be what I'm remembering is that you have quoted her a lot. When I was just preparing to talk to you today, I stumbled upon an article, and it I had already wanted to talk to you a little bit about propaganda, the news that we get, the slants that we get on everything, like right now it's Ukraine versus Russia, our involvement there, but I wanted to talk about Russian disinformation or what we are told is Russian disinformation. And so I stumbled on this article in the Huffington Post. It was from 2019. And here is the title. I mean, it's, it's a real hit piece on Vanessa. And having read some of your work and, and read your quotes, and I've also watched a few of her videos, I think this is a very unfair piece of so-called journalism. But it, the title says, How Obscure British Blogger Vanessa Bealey became Russia's key witness against the White Helmets. It puts her right off the bat, it paints her as a conspiracy theorist uh, and gives you all of the reasons why she's a conspiracy theorist. And it said her real passion is trying to convince the world that the White Helmets, the group that rescues people from the rubble of Syria's civil war is a terrorist link organization that fakes its activities to elicit sympathy in the West for a regime change plot against Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad. Then it goes on to tell that, that Vanessa Bealey is the daughter of the late British diplomat Sir Harold Bealey uh, and that she started activism in 2012. So given that you've spoken with her and you've done your own work on the White Helmets, I would love to hear your take on that and the White Helmets. 
Yeah, well, as far as Vanessa goes, um, you know, she's she's 100% legitimate as, as far as I can tell. Her work is, is always great. She She's not working for Russia. She's she's someone who started investigating the the Syrian crisis and you know came to her conclusions and she is very passionate about that about uh, speaking out against the war. But it's funny that the Huffington Post that was that's quite a good description of what they're saying that she's claiming about the White Helmets. It's, that's actually true. They are a terrorist organization and they are faking bombings and, and acts of brutality that they can blame on Assad and then use to pull on the heartstrings of Americans and, and Westerners. It's exactly what they are. Um, they're, they're actually another wing. They're a propaganda wing of al-Nusra Front, which is al-Qaeda. I know that because I was there when I, I went into the complex that they operated out of. It was the White Helmets compound, their headquarters in Aleppo, right after liberation, I went into that compound, and it's the same compound as the Al-Nusra Front headquarters. You can see the White Helmets emblem painted on the wall right next to the ISIS emblem, right next to it. I got pictures of it in my book and on my website. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's undeniable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, once, you, once you go in there, it's like a – it's an old school that the terrorists took over. It's shaped like an L, and as as they you know, got more and more strength and power in that – part of the city they one one group took over one of the the buildings and and the other branched off and took the other but they were still right there in the same compound with one another so yeah but as far as as vanessa goes you know i i i have to say that's a grossly unfair characterization of her and her work they have tried to silence vanessa numerous different ways she was giving a presentation on the white helmets I believe this was in in Europe. I believe it was a, a press club that was putting this on, and uh, some NGOs. I also believe uh, uh, was it without borders um, reporters without borders tried to have her shut down. And the man that was in charge of the press club actually put out a statement to his credit. He refused to shut the presentation down. It went ahead, but he he put out a presentation said, that, and all of his time. Doing this, he's never had a request from an organization like Reporters Without uh, Borders to silence a journalist, and that's that's what she is. I mean, she's a journalist. The, the difference, uh, one of the big differences between somebody like Beely and a BBC journalist is that Vanessa's actually in Syria. She's there now, has been for years. She was in in Syria fairly early on. You could actually see things. Firsthand, where most BBC journalists or CNN journalists were in Lebanon, getting uh, Skype interviews from terrorists in Eastern mm-hmm. Aleppo or Western Aleppo. So that's my characterization of her. You know, she's always been spot on when I've when I've read her work, and uh, you know, her integrity has also. Well, what uh, what made me curious about this is the bigger idea of how the mainstream, and now you're talking about journalists without borders, so it's it's all the way down to how the media is managed, characterizes anything that doesn't fit the approved narrative as, you, you know, the journalist is an agent for Russia. It's just, 
it's so easy to do and it's done over and over and we're seeing it all the time with Ukraine coverage as well. There's only one way to see Ukraine. And if you talk about it from a different point of view, you're a Russian disinfo agent. Yeah, and it's actually, I would say it's even worse with Ukraine than it has been with Syria in the past. I remember when that article came out about Vanessa, there were other articles that came out at the same time, you know, because there's there's rarely just one article that comes out in the mainstream. They all have to come out and say the same thing at the same time. But there was a, they actually put out a list of a number of journalists regarding Syria that were supposedly Russian disinformation agents. Uh, Eva Bartlett, I believe, was on there. Uh, there were a couple others that were listed as well, and uh, I was not. I actually emailed them and asked them to include me on the list because nobody really <laughs> believes them anymore. Right? If anybody's got kind of a functioning mind when it comes, at least when it comes to the Syrian situation, they don't really believe the Huffington Post. They don't believe the yeah. Washington Post. Yeah. So just, just, you know, I gave them a link to my website and all that, but they didn't put me on there. Um, <laughs> But it was, you know, fallow attempt, I guess, on my part. Yeah, but yeah. the 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 idea of Russian disinformation, though, it, it it's it sounds like something that was pulled right out of the fifties. The, the you know the worst part of an investigation that actually was somewhat legitimate, actually was legitimate, but. It's just a way to silence journalists, paint them as the enemy. And with Ukraine, though, I mean, if there, there was a guy in England who spoke out about the war in Ukraine, and I, I don't really know exactly what else he was involved in because I've I, I read some British people have some uh, strong opinions about him one way or the other, but he spoke out against the war in Ukraine, and he had his bank account seized. Uh, he, he can't get work anywhere in England. If he could get work, he couldn't get paid. He's essentially sanctioned by his own government inside of England. Um, the guy can't pay his bills. He can't buy food. It's precisely what everybody you know, has been concerned about and stuff that like Alan talked about with the, uh, the, the ration system, you know, where, where you're allotted a certain amount of credits, and if you speak out against uh, anything the government doesn't approve of, then you get your, your rations cut off. And this is, this is what's happened. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but he's not the only one either. Uh, it's happened elsewhere. So just labeling someone as Russian disinformation, there is Russian disinformation, of course. It does exist, but this is not exactly, you know, a lot of times Russians don't have to use, uh, you know, lies and propaganda to undercut the West and its agenda, and especially in Syria, they just had to report the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it makes the West look bad enough in Syria, so they they didn't have to actually do that. They, it was uh, and which led more to their a- a- approval with with readers and such when they could see that they corroborate the claims being made. Now, again, there is foreign disinformation. I think the alternative media especially has gone way too far to the other side. You know, particularly you can read so many articles that are extremely pro-China now in the alternative media. It's just vomit-inducing. It's the idea that, you know, the West has been responsible for Iraq and Libya and Syria and Ukraine. So anything the West says or does is completely wrong and anything that China and Russia do are completely right. That's That's also... Not a good way to present 
journalistic information either. So it's it's becoming where <laughs> it's it's more and more difficult, even if you read the alternative media, to determine what's fact or fiction. Mm-hmm. This is something that I found kind of challenging, and I more or less stayed away from Ukraine because I have no idea what's what. I talk to people who are very convinced, and they've got some interesting uh, theories on it. They've read books. They've talked to people um, that that view Russia as a a real serious threat in terms of the disinformation campaigns, but not so much in terms of real military might, like this is being overblown, that they aren't really the big bad bear, that China is militarily more of a threat. But um, then that begs the question of why then is the Western media so set on giving us that particular narrative that we need to be very concerned about Russia nuking us, <laughs> you know, taking taking it all the way to World War Three. So I, I, what I try to do is just get above it always and say, are we already, because I think Alan thought we were past nation states quite a long time ago and he would cite Carl Quigley and Tragedy and Hope and, you know, just talk about the bigger players above it all, but you still are in the trenches, just like in the Cold War, where there were people who were really fighting the Cold War and lives were lost. And and it was a very real experience. And this happens always with geopolitics. People in Syria die. People in Ukraine die. Russian soldiers die. So you can't discount it and say, oh, there's no nation state, this doesn't matter. I'm just trying to get a better idea of what's really going on in Ukraine when I can't trust anything at all that I read. Yeah, it's it's extremely difficult because if you read the news reports on, on the Western side, they're going to tell you that the Ukrainians are, are making a, a valiant... Uh, counteroffensive and the Russians are losing thousands of soldiers a day. If you listen to the Russian side, you're going to hear the opposite. You know, it's mm-hmm. a it's a, it's a terrible uh, 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 counteroffensive and the Ukrainians are losing a thousand soldiers a day. And all you have to do is just sit back and look at this for a few months and say, if people were losing thousands of soldiers a day, like what, what would the body count be on both sides? Eventually, they're going to run out of soldiers. Mm-hmm. But you don't really see that, right? So. So a lot of it is just in, entirely propaganda. It seems to me that what we're seeing is just the tail end of the mopping up of the idea of the nation state. Because there are people, um, leaders, who believe in it, who believe in uh, at least some idea of national sovereignty, some idea of national identity and, and, uh, and culture. And those seem to be the leaders that are, are coming under fire. As far as the Russians go in, in terms of a military threat, I, it, it's hard to tell beyond the nuclear capability how much of a military threat they actually are. It doesn't seem to me that a Russian disinformation campaign has been in any way successful. I mean, we saw that 
when the 2016 elections, 2020 elections, where the claims were the Russians were hacking the votes, they were putting out all kinds of disinformation campaigns online, and all of that was false. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the worst they could find were a Russian bot farm, uh, which doesn't really promote anything. It just shares stories. The, the Chinese, however, are quite good at it. The Chinese do, in fact, have uh, th- their claws into um, American universities, American corporations, um, just the, the question of the border itself, right? It's where, where so many Chinese are coming across the, the U.S.-Mexico border. It's You don't see the Russians doing it. The Russians are, in my opinion, acting defensive, even though you know it, it sounds counterintuitive because they did – Invade Ukraine, but there's a lot leading up to that. You know, there's a yes. complete destabilization over a decade ago that was still ongoing. Militias were being funded to attack Eastern Ukrainians, and NATO was being moved up to Russia's border, which Russia has stated over and over that it would not tolerate. There was talk of nuclear weapons for Ukraine. This goes back to Brzezinski. Speaking of Brzezinski, wrote about this. The idea of federalizing Russia, breaking it up into three separate uh, separate parts in order to weaken it. And, uh, you know, Putin is, a, is well aware of this and mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be willing to, to go gentle into that dark night. And it seems that that's what is behind the Ukraine issue. I don't think that uh, Putin even wants Ukraine. I think he wants the Donbass and a, a buffer state. I think that would be... A, a reasonable solution too to give them, well, given, wrote, given what's going on. You wrote a, a really excellent article, which I will also link to, entitled "Yes, We Can End the Ukraine War in 24 Hours." Here's how. And I thought to myself when I finished reading it, we should send you over there to negotiate it because it it is very sensible. It, it does. It makes sense, but. Have you followed anything that John Mearsheimer has said about the crisis, about what's going on in Ukraine? I have not, unfortunately. Basically, he blames the U.S. for the situation for some of the reasons that you referred to, although not um, explicitly in your article. But he said, look, this is, you know, there's a destabilization process that you called it more explicitly than that. We toppled their government. But there is this pushing, and he said in a long lecture that he gave, I think in 2016 or 17, it's inevitable that there will be another conflict, that Russia will probably go into Ukraine. It is inevitable because we, the, the West has not backed down on the very things that Russia said it won't stand for. NATO membership for Ukraine um, being the predominant issue. That's the main issue. I mean, imagine if if the shoe were on the other foot, right? If if Russia were um, were, were pushing up to the borders of the United States, how long would we tolerate that? You know, um, we're actually having somewhat of a similar issue with with uh, in, foreign influence in in Cuba. That's right on our border. When you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, we certainly didn't tolerate missiles on our doorstep and yet we expect other countries to tolerate it on theirs it doesn't make any sense unless you're just the the aggressor which you know unfortunately we are in this sense i i wrote articles back when this happened saying that this 
could and possibly would lead to a World War III type confrontation just simply because it's on Russia's doorstep. It's finally, it's, it's finally uh, bringing Russia into the conflict directly. Now, uh, just one other thing I would, I would mention because you brought up, you know, the, the idea of the nation state and also the, the fact that regardless of what the forces are behind these events, that things happen that involve real-life situations or real people pay the price. When I was in Syria, I talked to – well, I'm going I'm to let his identity remain secret because he's still there – but an, an individual that, that told me that everybody's looking at this as a war between Russia and the United States. They're looking at this as a big geopolitical piece, uh, chess piece on the board. He said, what we really are, we're just a testing ground. For Russia and America's military industrial complex. We're just the most unlucky people that have been picked to be the testing ground. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth to that. And in that, um, yes, there is a geopolitical interest for sure, but a, a lot of this really is, you know, replenishing depleted stocks for the military industrial complex too because if if all those weapons are used up they have to create new ones that are all paid for by by taxation and so forth and they can develop new and better weapons which they're testing out in Syria and Ukraine and, and other places as well I was kind of thinking along those lines yesterday when I was working on the redux that went up and, and actually illustrating the uh, the video for it and Alan was talking about how basically at the end of the Cold War, you've got the military-industrial complex saying, okay, what do we do now to generate this enormous revenue that we're used to? That Well, what, what happens next is, that the, is the creation of the surveillance state, and the surveillance state is, is global. And so all of the money that they used that that slushed around during the Cold War is now going on, like, say, putting satellites up in the air, uh, 5G, 24-7, you know, the total surveillance state. But when I was illustrating that, I thought, well, there's still plenty. I mean, look at all of the billions of in weaponry that we have sent Ukraine. So it's it's happening at the same time. It's it's not like all of a sudden they've said no more boots on the ground and we're going to quit making tanks and missiles. They they still do that. <laughs> There's you know the military industrial complex is more than alive and well. It hasn't taken all of those weapons off the table to put them into surveillance. But that is a big part of, and I think that's a big part of how even the traditional wars, like in Ukraine and Syria, are now being waged with, you know, information, information warfare, and the so-called cyber warriors. Yeah, I mean, they haven't been removed yet because, you know, like you, like we said earlier, nation states still exist and resistance is still uh, possible to some degree. But it also seems that there's an intended chaos, not just in, in these conflicts and, or in other conflicts, but just in, in general, like in, inside societies themselves, including ours. 
there's an increasing amount of chaos, especially here in the West where things are starting to fall apart, where we're starting to become more third world than first. You start to see culture breaking apart and more and more domestic conflicts, you know, in intranational conflicts, I guess we should say. Um, in Europe especially, as they bring in more immigrants from Africa and the Middle East and Asia, where all these cultures like run up against each other. It's I, I don't know if you see the same thing, but I've been I've definitely seen a, a, a situation in which even here in America, you're you're less able to know what you're dealing with culturally when you're dealing with someone else than than it was previously. Yes, I I think I know what you mean. It's nothing is clear anymore. Right. I, I mean that's. Yeah, and that's obviously strategy too. And it, but it's happening at the same time that you're having international conflicts between governments. And I, I think that's entirely by design, where countries are falling apart within and falling apart in terms of conflict with one another. I mean, that's the ultimate chaos, right? If you have some type of World War III confrontation and countries are falling apart inside as well, well, when you come to bring order. It's much easier to do that on a on a global scale if everything's falling apart. Yes. Well, I had just jotted down there were a couple of things that I've always been curious about, and we've talked before, but I don't think that I asked you then. What started you? Like, if if you want to say that. I, there's not a good word for it, but is it waking up or is it seeing things different than how the mainstream media presents it? What started your journey to for truth or accurate information or knowledge about how things really work? Um, I would definitely say it was a process. Uh, I've always been kind of interested in politics, for lack of a better term, mainly just the idea of of individual freedom. I've always kind of written about those types of things, for instance, never really understood at a young age why the government could tell me what I could and could put in my own body. Um, You know, a lot of things didn't make sense. And I would would write about those things off and on. I think 9-11 was probably the biggest moment for me, though, where I saw... It's, it's interesting. I was reading a book. Well, I, I was talking to someone who recommended I read 1984 around the same time that this happened, around the same time as 9-11. And then the Patriot Act was coming through. And I, as I was reading this book, it just made sense. You know, it's, uh, it almost sounds like a game plan to me. And the more I started to research what happened, the more I realized what we were told was just simply not true. And I think that was if, – if I had to point to a moment – that was a moment where I realized it goes a little deeper than than just a simple government overreach on many different issues. And I started doing a lot of research. But it still probably wasn't until about seven or eight years after that that I that I realized that it, it goes even deeper than than just nine eleven and the left right paradigm. And so it's 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 a process always, you know. Um, you when you think you've kind of figured that out, something comes around to, you know, quickly make you realize that you hadn't figured anything out. And, you know, then I came across uh, Alan's work, which 
which helped tremendously, which I still respect tremendously, in putting all those pieces together that that really made sense. And you know, even as we were talking earlier, where, where you you get to that point and you start writing articles in the alternative media and stuff, you even reach a point where you realize that much of the alternative media is as much a part of that same system as the mainstream media. So um, I, I think it's a real long roundabout way of answering your question, but it was uh, it was a process for sure. Had you been writing, like had that kind of inquisitive mind, uh, you know, since childhood, since high school? When did you start putting pen to paper, so to speak? Probably high school. I, I, I was writing, you know, Obviously, it wasn't that good because it was a high school student writing. But I was I was writing about civil liberties and and stuff like that as far back as high school. Okay. I also had a, a just a curious question because again, in illustrating this latest Redux, Alan mentioned a documentary that John Pilcher had done on the. NHS, the, the abysmal state of the National Health Service in, in the UK. And I was just thinking about how long John Pilger has done journalism and whether you agree with his particular point of view on things or not, he has a very high standard of journalism, I think. And I, so I thought, I just wanted to ask you, who do you admire of writers and journalists? Who were inspirational to you? Uh, as far as inspiration, I found a lot of these, these journalists that I respect now as I began writing for the alternative media. Uh, but the inspiration for... From, for beginning to write, I think uh, I, I don't know if you ever heard of Nat Hentoff before, but he was he wrote a lot of a lot of different types of things. He, he he wrote liner notes to albums and stuff. But he was a he was a journalist wrote a lot of op-ed columns as far back as the '60s, and I always respected him because whether you agreed with him or didn't, he had his positions and he stuck to them, and it didn't matter how many people he angered. He was more of a progressive, but he would speak out against, he was anti-abortion, which they hated. Uh, they would, you know, they would go nuts every time he wrote about something like that. And it doesn't really even matter what the position is that he was, he, he was, he believed it and he stuck to it. And I always admired that. And I also do, ag agreed with him on most things too, in terms of civil liberty. So he used to actually have a column that would get reposted in the local newspaper here in South Carolina. Never really knew why, but I I would read that weekly. Um, but a lot of creative writers and stuff, whether it's songwriters, poets, fiction writers, that's that's probably that's what got me into writing in general. But in terms of journalism, I think it was just a natural progression because I was interested in writing. I felt like there were some things that needed to be said, so that's that was a talent that I had. So I felt like I could say it. And sometimes just saying it plainly in a journalistic type op-ed article was the best way to do it. Who were some of those novelists that you admired that or were inspired by? If you could um, share a name or two. 
Well, uh, you know, in terms of novelist, Tim O'Brien uh, wrote a good book called The Things They Carry. This, has no, again, has nothing to do with with what I write. It's just mm-hmm. good fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, the Things They Carried was a great book. But, you know, just I don't know if I would say any specifically that that really inspired me. The, the idea of creative writing in general, mainly songwriting, mainly more into music. So, you know, the, the bigger songwriters, Dylan, Cohen, that sort of thing, um, really, uh, Dylan, more than anything else, inspired me to start writing in general, uh, creatively and, and journalistically, more so than any, any journalist or, any, or, or novelist. Um, Interesting. Bob Dylan, not Dylan Thomas, but and, yes. and Leonard Cohen, <laughs> Leonard Cohen as well. That's interesting. So, do you have time for music? Off and on, I don't really have time for anything. It seems this is why I haven't written as many articles, and I actually have a draft of an article that I, I've been wanting to put out about Niger, and I just uh, I just haven't had the opportunity to to put it out. But as much as I can, I like to find opportunities for creative projects. It's a different kind of experience, and it's it's something I you know I'd like to do more of. Um, I've I've written music, and I've written as you know poetry, and and written some fiction too. So I like to try to experience as many types of, of writing as I can, or engage in it at least. No, that I, I I've always loved good writing. My since since I could since I can recall, and I, I when I was young, my parents were I had a book with me always, and sometimes they'd drag me over to a friend's house or some relative that I wasn't interested in talking to, and I'd have my nose in the book, and I was always reprimanded for that. But you know, good writing transports you to another world. Well, it's it's also you know it's 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 communication, and if whether it's creative, whether it's songwriting or journalism or or whatever it is, it's it's all about communicating an idea that's that's in your head or in someone else's head to other people, and there's multiple different ways to do that, and I, I think a lot of people get stuck on one specific method, but I get bored easily so that's why I move from one thing to the other if I stay on one thing very long I'll, I'll just get bored with it so hence why I've tried pretty much every form of writing that is is out there I haven't tried really haven't done too much with screenwriting or anything but maybe one day yeah well um, I I I don't have more questions for you. That that is what I brought. Other the things that were on my mind were really the level above all of this and how politics and geopolitics is presented to us. But if there are things that are on your mind or that you've been thinking about that you want to talk about, I would love to encourage you to just start. Well, you know, I, I really would encourage people if they're interested. Most of my work has has been focused on Syria, and that's what I've written most of my books about, written most of my articles about in the last ten or so years. And if anybody's interested in in reading about what happened there, what's happening there, I'd encourage them to 
to go to my website. There's a ton of articles on there about that uh, for free, and there's also a bunch of, you know, uh, probably there's four books, soon to be six books available about just that issue specifically that they can they can find. It contains more information than than just about Syria. I do plan to be putting out more articles in the future. I, I took a more than brief hiatus. I meant for it to be a brief hiatus, but it turned into a rather long hiatus from from writing and doing interviews and pretty much actually this is, uh, I believe the first interview I've done in four years. So wow. I am going to try to to put out more information, and I hope people keep periodically checking back the website and and just seeing what I have there. Um, life gets in the way sometimes, but I do. I am going to try to put more information out soon so yeah it, it, it depends on what you want to talk about to be honest i can i'll, I'll catch myself rambling if i don't have some guidance here so uh, i tell you what it, just as you were talking i was listening but two other thoughts um, popped into my head i the first is why syria what was it about syria that grabbed your attention and and made it so that you couldn't let go you had to stick with it well, I was kind of paying attention to what was happening in Libya. I was kind of tan- tangentially paying attention to that. And as the tail end of the Libyan crisis, or the tail end of Gaddafi's life, was happening, I was seeing the same thing happen in Syria, the same thing beginning to happen. So I thought, I'm going to pay attention to this, and, and we'll, we'll start covering this before it starts to even hit hit mainstream. And as I was doing so, I, I met someone from Syria who began uh, telling me about the culture and not necessarily about the war, about the war, but also about their experiences there and their culture and, and just – had a had a growing interest in it and and the more i heard about it the more i fell in love with the culture and after about god five years of writing about that crisis almost on a daily basis i got the opportunity to travel there and and that was the first of three visits and have found indeed that i have fallen in love with their culture it's a wonderful place and I hope I get a chance to go back again, uh, someday soon. But... Again, like a process, you know, I, I was on the day that Gaddafi was killed, I was traveling to give a lecture about 9-11 to a college class. I was supposed to uh, give them a lecture about, a guest lecture about terrorism in American politics and philosophy. And that was the day that Gaddafi was murdered by Western-backed terrorists, and I, it, I kind of stuck with me. And... At that moment, I really started to pay more attention to the Syrian crisis. And as, as I said, my my friend that was giving me a crash course in Syrian culture and Syrian politics at the same time is really what focused my my attention there. 
interesting. Uh, you know what what happened to Gaddafi? I that had an effect on me too. It was just it's one of the worst stories of what our government does in geopolitics that I had ever heard. It's just outrageous. If you look at Libya, what it was under Gaddafi, say what you will about him, it was a functioning country that used its resources more or less effectively for its own, um, for the help and benefit of the people who were Libyan. And the glee, the, the psychopathic glee that Hillary Clinton demonstrated with her comment after his murder is, is one of the most chilling things I've ever heard in my life. And people were going to consider her to be president of, you know, I mean, it's just... Without even having the decency to hide it. You know, if it, it's it's one thing when when someone in power is psychopathic, but when they lose the the necessity to hide their psychopathy, then that says something for society. You know, mm -hmm. when when tyrants can be tyrants without having to cloak it under uh, humanitarianism or the greater good, that says something to society. That's that says that they're no longer afraid of what you think. And I think we're at that point now. Yes. COVID for sure. COVID yeah. made that clear. Yes, that's absolutely true. Well, I'm just curious if you can give if you can give a little bit of a paint a, paint a little poem or a little picture about the culture of Syria. What it is that made you fall in love with it? What what is uniquely Syrian? It, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard to describe specifically what I like the most, you know, like what, what it is about the culture. But for people who who don't really pay attention to the Middle East much, they'll, they'll get the impression that all the women are walking around in veils, um, that everyone's riding camels, that it's all desert. And that's not Syria at all. The, there's all there's the three big religions and a, and a bunch of others there, and they all coexist. And to be honest, I saw more women in veils in France and the UK than I ever did in Syria. Interesting. Um, you know, you, you can you can go to bars in Syria. There's liquor stores everywhere. It's it's um it's not what's portrayed. It's not all desert. There is a desert there, but there's also mountains. There's also beaches. Uh, lots of green, lush areas.
people themselves are some of the most welcoming and friendly and kind and intelligent people. There's a spark of life in them that I, I think perhaps it's, it's the only it's the spark of life that somebody has when they're close to death. Yes. Um, when I went there, it was it was a war zone, and there's something to be said for when you're close to death and life is incredibly important and beautiful. And they seemed to 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 embrace that, not the war, but the 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 love of of life in in general. In fact, one of the Syrians told me, "We're surrounded by death, so for us, living is enough." It was it was just an incredible warmth. People seem to think that as Americans, you know, you go somewhere like Syria, and they were going to hate Americans. Well, that was not the case at all. Um, I had people as soon as they realized I was an American, they would walk up to me and try to talk in broken English. Um, we got invited to people's homes for dinner. I was given gifts just because I was there. Um, they would give they would give me um, gifts. I rarely paid for food. It's just a. Uh, it's a unique culture. It's it's you know everybody has their religion, but it's secular in the sense that religion doesn't govern society as it does, say, in Saudi Arabia or or Iran. It's um, it's definitely a place where people coexist. And there's something to be said. You know, when I, I went, Damascus is the oldest inhabited city in the world, and so you're you're walking around this city full of people. And it's literally the oldest city that's inhabited, and and there's all this history there. And it's it's hard to describe, you know, specifically what I what I I loved about their culture. I felt this way about Japan too, but but it's I, I definitely do. Might not be for everybody, but most of the people that I've known that have traveled there, at least during the war, have come away with. A respect and and a love for for Syria as a country and for the people. It is nice, especially since there is an intelligence there, and they've been in this war state for over a decade now, and they have to know where it's coming from and what it's about. That they are still so respectful of Americans and welcoming, generous, hospitable. Yeah, they definitely knew where it was coming from long before Americans knew. Um, they the, the education system is, is is much much better there. They're they're more focused on on learning than installing a political ideology in their education system. So it's you see children who are much more uh, mature and intelligent than what we are able to produce here with uh, with our current system, but. It's well known amongst amongst everybody who's behind it and why. There's a fairly sophisticated knowledge of geopolitics that go on there. And again, that's that might be partially also because of when you're when you're the victim of a ten year war. You know, you tend to want to figure out the ins and outs of it. But in many ways, the situation is worse there today than it was when I traveled there. The military situation is better, but the sanctions have completely destroyed that country. They, the, the people are uh, – it's incredibly difficult for them to find food on a regular basis. Decent food is even more rare. Um, heat 
uh, oil, all of this is is borderline impossible to find right now. There, a lot of times, a lot of the people I know don't have electricity, but maybe one hour a day. And the last time I checked, there were times where there was one hour every other day. That's enough to charge your cell phone a little bit. Um, maybe use the vacuum cleaner, and then then you're done for for the next day and a half. I asked one friend if uh, if she had enough to eat, uh, and she said yes. You know, uh, we we have we have enough to eat, just not every day. And it's taken a country that was borderline what we would call first world in terms of standards and turned it into complete third world status not just because of the war but mainly because of the sanctions now and it's it's really taken a toll on their spirit that's what uh hunger and and you know consistent despair can do i really liked the way that you worded this in the article that you did you know yes we can end the ukraine war in 24 hours you made a a really good point about sanctions you said this is point 14 in how your the, the war could be ended. You said that Russia and Ukraine agreed to eliminate sanctions imposed on one another as a result of the conflict. Then you went on, you said armed conflict is not the only act of war. Indeed, sanctions have long been viewed as an act of war in and of themselves since they are a form of embargo. I just thought it was just very clear. <laughs> you really drove home the point, which is, in, you know, in terms of Syria, this has been a nonstop war on Syria for more than a decade by the West, mostly the U.S. And this is just a tragedy. And Americans do not know that because we're given pitiful propaganda that most people. Don't question. Yeah, I, I, most Americans have no idea also what they destroyed. They think the ones that know about Syria and that they can point to it on a map think that, that we destroyed some primitive religious fundamentalist government that hated America and funded terrorism is what they think. They have no idea that, that what we did was overthrow um, a country that was lifting itself out of third world status and and where the people were indeed uh, getting along with one another secular and and fighting terrorism they have the, the people had a respect and an admiration of the United States the United States could have had been in in many respects a force for good in the world at one point but it certainly not anymore and we've not only squandered, but we've ensured that we we will be seen as a force of evil for many generations to come, for many people all across the world, and particularly in Syria. And it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And it certainly could have done the opposite. It's it's well, perhaps it's not a discussion for another time. The difference between American and Chinese imperialism, but. They're both imperialism, but the Chinese don't tend to use bombs. They use uh, the, the carrot instead of the stick, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. We tend to use bombs and sanctions, and eventually we're going to sanction ourselves and uh, into non-existence. Because if you look at the list of countries that we've got sanctions on, 
what's going to happen? We're going to wake up one day and realize that we can't do business with anybody. And, and as I said in the article, you know, it's, it, sanctions are an embargo. It's not the same thing as tariffs. It's an embargo. It doesn't matter if you surround a country with ships and you don't allow food in, or if you just use keystrokes on a on a keyboard. If you if the people can't eat, they can't eat. Doesn't matter how right. you do it. Right. So that's that's the biggest issue facing Syria today is is sanctions. They serve no real legitimate purpose either because it, nobody in the Syrian government is starving. And nobody in the Iranian government or the Russian government is going to starve, nor are they ever going to starve. It's always going to be the average person who pays the price. And the, mm-hmm. the logic behind it, of course, is that they'll start some kind of insurrection or they'll overthrow the government. But how many times does that happen? Right. It's just a, a tragic thing. But according to Madeleine Albright, you know, the, that kind of thing is just worth it. <laughs> Another psychopath who didn't mind showing it. Yeah, it's always, you know, acceptable casualties. That was another. Um, that it's acceptable casualties for our side, of course. But when, but when uh, Russia bombed terrorists in Syria, that was not considered acceptable casualties. Those were uh, a tragic loss of life, which they were. But it's it's ironic how how wordplay can turn the exact same thing into its opposite. War is peace. <laughs> well, we've we finally reached that point. Right? We, we've reached the point where the media can tell us one thing on Monday and tell us the the opposite on Tuesday, and the only thing people remember what it said on Tuesday. I'm in South Carolina where our governor won re-election because he said our state did did well during the pandemic because we never shut down. That's not true. We shut down for months here in South Carolina. He did it, and it doesn't seem that anybody even remembers. How so. bizarre. <laughs> I, I mean, don't, don't you find that bizarre? Yeah, I've had to remind people. You know, I, I've actually told one person, you know, of course we shut down. We, it was months we shut down. You couldn't go to the, you couldn't even go to the, the, the lake. You couldn't go to the river. He, he banned boats on the river at one point because the boats got too close to each other. And people don't even seem to remember it. Now, granted, the guy who was running against him was completely communist and, and, and wanted an even bigger shutdown. But the point was we did we did shut down the state and lock down, and nobody even seems to remember that it happened. Yeah. And we've, we've reached that point with many different, you know, situations as well. War, uh, economic crisis, all of it. Yeah, this is why, you know, there are some people who will go down a rabbit hole. It doesn't really matter what it's about. But let's just take, for example, 9-11, some disclosure about, you know, 9-11 truth, that kind of thing. And they just, they're so sure that if they can prove whatever their point is about what really happened as opposed to what the media told us happened, then that will change everything because it exposes the system, it exposes the liars and everything. And I always think that I I don't even pay attention to most of these things where you're looking for the smoking gun because if you have the smoking gun, it changes nothing. The agenda goes on. It's always going to go on. It, It takes a different kind of... 
moment for anything to shift slightly. But, uh, you know, showing them the smoking gun and saying, aha, here it is, that doesn't do it. Because, like you said, most people will remember the last lie that they were told. Also, there's no there's no leadership. You know, you can you can expose something, but what do you do with it once it's exposed? Um, even if we exposed a smoking gun to 350 million people here in the states, if we're all just chattering about it, what does it matter? You know, it's a it's like the big debate in scare quotes about torture that we had when it was revealed that we were. Engaging in enhanced interrogation. It wasn't really a debate. It was just put out so people could talk about it at work for the next three days and then think we had a national debate and it was over. Well, now we torture. That's exactly what would happen if we just exposed something and, and moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's no leadership as to say, here's, here's the smoking gun and here's what we should do about it. The Kennedy assassination, for instance, does anybody really believe that Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK? Does it really matter? Well, what's anybody going to yeah. do about it? Yes. That's always, that's exactly what I say. What difference does it make? Does that matter? You know, about that, about anything. It's like, I, I don't spend any time there because I find that just like you, I have very limited time. I, I don't have enough time to do the things that I think are urgent and that I, I want to get done. And just going down endless rabbit holes looking you know, for those ahas, gotcha, gotcha, because it changes nothing. I actually think if there's any smoking guns that that we should be pushing out there, it's, it's a lot of... A lot of the stuff that Alan mentioned on his on his own talks, which were the writings of people who said that that, that this society is what they wanted to uh, to bring about. I mean, for instance, the Club of Rome. When when he first started speaking in alternative media, I don't think anybody talked about the Club of Rome. No. And then the alternative media started talking about it. Well, I actually hear people talking about the Club of Rome now on on. On Fox News, mm-hmm. you know, so it went from it went from a guy in Canada talking about that one issue on on a few shows to national media, you know, and yes. and it's hard to deny when you hear it in their own words when you hear that they're saying uh, global warming would fit the bill to change society. It's it's hard to ignore that, especially when you're living through it and you're seeing it. Um, so there is some hope. Uh, but I think the smoking guns not, aren't necessarily what we discover is, is, as much as the stuff that they've already said openly. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think that that is a really good point, Brandon, because it, the only thing that can move people, the average person, just incrementally until they can say, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop going back to sleep in front of the football game or whatever and, and, and try to do something here is if they can have a, an, an overall picture that this is that we're living through a long-term agenda if they can get that so that they don't go back to the default position of left-right politics um, or you know what are they doing to us today but to always to be able to refer to it and go oh no this is an awful lot like uh, what Bertrand Russell wrote about, you know, the diet, 
injunction injection. Aha, uh-huh. okay. It's it, it just one statement after another that they can start, you know, sparking to. Yeah, exactly. And that that's what's often so frustrating about, you know, I, I, I guess I'm being kind of hard on the alternative media here. I don't mean to be, but it's this idea of what are they doing to us now? Here's the mm-hmm. new thing that they're doing. Here's the new rabbit hole or breadcrumb trail that we've got to follow and expose. And by the time you've exposed it, there's there's 20 new things that that they've done and you, we've missed. That's right. Um, it, as you said, just the overarching plan that has been stated repeatedly, the long-term plan so that people don't think that it, it's an issue that we have to deal with. And once that one issue is dealt with, everything's okay. Once you see that it's a long-term agenda that encompasses most of society, then you begin to see see people really, you know, looking at the puppet master. You get to see that it's not really just the Republicans or the Democrats. It's not really just the corporations or just the banks. It's more, it's more to it than that. Now, what happens after that? You know, that's a, it's a different topic, but um, it's important that that is what gets out there. Yes. I've enjoyed talking with you. I think that we've uh, made the second episode with you already, though. I like the idea of U.S. versus Chinese imperialism. I'm intrigued. Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, to come back on. And if you have anything at all that you want to share with me or you want to share with the listeners, then send it on over, and I will include that with this. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll do that. Before I say thank you and goodbye, is there anything else that burned on your mind that you gotta that you'll kick yourself if you don't don't mention it? Uh, no, I think that's about it. Like I said, I'm I'm gonna just keep checking the website. Hopefully, I'll have some more material up there soon, whether it's books or articles. You know, just uh, brandonturboville.com. That's where I repost all of the stuff that I write. Okay, great. I, and I'll be sure to include that link and many more of your links with this talk. And I thank everyone for listening to this discussion with Brandon. And please join me again next week. And next week I'll just mention that I'm going to be speaking with Dr. William Mackus from Canada. Um, you may remember that I've been speaking about him for a while. He's doing some excellent work up there exposing um, vaccine death and injury and many other things that are going on. So thank you and take care. Father.